Hello and welcome to the podcast, What I Wish I Knew as an NQT, with me, Jeremy Crook. This is a show where my guests and I will share with you the things we have learnt as teachers that will be invaluable for inexperienced teachers taking the early steps in their careers. I'll be talking to those new to teaching, as well as those who have spent a lifetime educating children. And one thing you can be sure of, they will all have something interesting and informative to say on the art of being a great teacher. Today, I'm talking to Graham Chatterley, who is a former SEMH school leader. SEMH, if you don't know, stands for Social, Emotional and Mental Health. Having experienced a huge range of behaviour as both a primary and secondary teacher, Graham has developed a deep understanding of why pupils behave as they do. And he believes that developing the appropriate ethos and culture over quick-fix strategies is the most effective approach to support young people. Graham has led training for thousands of educators across the north of England. His great insight into how highly effective practice in a specialist setting could be transferred to mainstream schools has enabled him to successfully support teachers with their most challenging pupils, many of whom were at risk of exclusion. Graham is the director of Changing Perceptions, where the training and support to schools is designed to do just that. He has also authored his first book, Building Positive Behaviour, which was published last year. Graham, welcome. Thank you for speaking with me today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited by this because uh, I know, having read things about you, that uh, you and I align very closely in our beliefs. You're much more expert than I am, but uh, but but helping children to learn how to behave was always the approach that I used. Yeah, I think that's it, isn't it? I think that that matching up of an ethos is one of the most important things that we can do, uh, and it's I think it's that ethos about wanting all children to succeed um rather than being happy for the for the majority which i think is is a system that is often fallen into you know if 95% of our children are doing okay then that's that's all right but 5% of children is a lot of children isn't it if that's a heck of a lot of children and and that isn't enough is it it's i mean th- this has already prompted a thought you know this off rolling practice we see for ofsted and all this sort of thing how shocking is that 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 w- that we can say well i'm going to i'm just going to sort of ignore these children because ofsted is more important than the child one thing I often say to educators, especially teachers, you know, are you are you a teacher of a subject or are you a teacher of children? And um, which which is your priority and which comes first? And when we are a teacher of a subject, the the subject comes first and the grade is the most important thing. When we are teachers of children first and subject second, then the child comes first. And I think that's part of that mindset that we've got to get for our young people and it's it's very easy for me to sit here and say it because I'm not doing it anymore I'm not in the classroom at the moment I've not got the pressures of those those grades or anything along those lines but even when I did it was always child first for me Mm. Um, and I think that's something that I try to push whenever I'm working with any educators yeah and I think that's right when I was a head teacher my school never got an outstanding Ofsted grade but inspectors always said this is a wonderful place isn't it this is a place that children love coming to, that parents love, that the teachers love working in. And I said, yeah, and I said, that's because we put the people first. 
The people matter more than anything else. And we've got high standards and we expect great things, but actually the people matter more. Then my last inspection, the inspector said, if we come back next year, your data's looking like it will be high enough to get outstanding. And we were already in the top 20% of schools. This wasn't poor data. And she said, shall I come back in a year's time? I said, oh, no, thank you. I said, <laughs> we're more than happy that you're going to say that, that this is a great school, but there's things we could do better. And, and that's it, isn't it? I think it's that what are you prioritising is, is, mm. is a key element to it. And, and it's, it's things that you can't measure, you know, and you can't measure them with a standardised test. So they, they no. lose importance to some people, but they are the most important elements. But I, I often get involved in conversations around wellbeing. And, and uh, you know, the, the counter argument when you are working around behaviour, uh, what, what people often see a child's behavior and then there's this assumption about choice which i'm sure we can talk about you know and your children are choosing to to misbehave or to be naughty or or something like that when actually in reality there's probably a much more underlying reason it's got nothing to do with any kind of conscious choice but because that's what we are often told as new teachers we think it's oh well if my lesson was more interesting or more Mm. exciting or you know, they don't like me or it's my fault that this child isn't engaging. When in reality, it's nothing to do with, no. with the adult. And adults are going home believing that it's them and they're taking the behaviours personally. And that's that's not helping the relationship whatsoever. And then we have more knock-on uh, issues in that respect. If we can understand what's causing the behaviour better, then we realise it's nothing to do with us and we approach it differently. And that's that's what... Again, something that we certainly in the early stages of a teacher's career, that would be absolutely invaluable to get that message. Yeah, and that that's a great takeaway straight away. It's not personal, folks. It's not about you as a teacher. It's about th- this child and the concerns they have with their life. And this is what's driving their, their behaviours. It's not that your lesson on graphs was a bit dull. Can we go back to the beginning of your career, Graham? And when did you first develop your fascination with how children behave? Um, because I started off in year four uh, and I taught in the centre of Birmingham, year four. And I'd had, you know, your traditional teacher training and I was going into that environment thinking that i needed to be an authority figure and you know all of don't that smile stuff. before christmas all of that stuff <laughs> you know and and so that's what i went in to do because that's what i've been told to do and it was failing miserably and i was having a rotten time and i was struggling with my class and i was i was genuinely thinking about calling it a day and i kind of got to a point where i was I was close to failing my NQT year and hey me too yeah and I, and I, and I was and I'd, I'd become disillusioned and mm. I'd, I'd sort of made a decision without actually telling anybody that was I was going to do something else and that making that decision kind of relaxed me um and fortunately we were in a position then you know many moons ago where if you did extracurricular activities then you got a little bit of extra money so you know extra money is nice so i started doing extracurricular activities and you know one of my subjects my subject specialism even though i was primary was was pe so i did a i did a a rugby club and i did a um a football club and i did a chess club and 
when I was doing those things, we were having fun and it was relaxed and, and all those different things. And then I started to notice that those children's behavior in class was, was, was really good. And the penny kind of dropped for me that maybe actually it wasn't the authority that was needed. It was actually the other stuff. So, so then I started to change the way I was with, with lots of the other children. And, and again, it all started to, to get better. Um, and, and, I, and I managed to scrape through my NQT year and I managed to feel a bit differently about how, how things were going to go. Um, now, some things happened in my personal circumstances and I, and I had to move away from Birmingham. Um, but then I thought, well, it, I didn't work perfectly in primary. Maybe I should give secondary a go. So I did a lot of work. Uh, I did a bit of supply and then I did some long-term work in, um, uh, and worked in, in secondary PE. And similar things sort of happened within the secondary PE in that children that other people were talking about in really negative ways were actually, I, I got on really well with, and they were doing really well in my sub, my subject. And and at first I thought that must be because they like PE and it's about the subject and it's about the interest that they have in that. But if that's the case, then why, why was it when I got a cover of their English or their science lesson their behaviour for me was better than it was for their mm. science or their English teacher, and why was it? Why were they more engaged? And and it just it becomes clear that it's the relationship that is the key element, and you know that's kind of where it's gone from from there. I then stumbled into what was traditionally EBD or Naughty Boys, as it was known <laughs> then in two thousand and five, uh, and ebd was a pretty simple premise really emotional behavior difficulties it's the idea that as long as your relationships were good and your boundaries were strong those children would be all right for you and and it, and it was you know you saw a lot of that there was a lot of people who were ex-army who worked in that environment and 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 things along those lines and we went through a few shifts in that in that area because the first shift was to move to social emotional behavioral difficulties, which then meant we had to do a bit more around the children's work interacting with each other, you know, and the social difficulties mm -hmm. that they had. Then the big shift was when we got, you know, from a school of, of, of 60 or 65, I think we were, we got five, all boys, we got five girls. And then all of a sudden the boys became very, very quiet as the girls completely took over the place. Um, but the big shift was when we went from SEMH uh, sorry, from S from SCBD to SCMH because the behaviour label's gone away there, and just simply focusing on on boundaries and expectations wasn't enough. Now we had to understand what was causing the behaviour, and that was that was sink or swim for many of the staff who found that really difficult, who'd been doing it the same way for a long time. For me, it was the bit where I fell down the rabbit hole, and I've continued to be stuck down that rabbit hole for a long time now but everything I've done over the last decade at least has been about trying to get a deeper understanding of what's causing the the behaviors and if you if you go into that SEMH any SEMH setting or most APs to be honest you will find such a range of needs if you just scratch mm. below the surface and that that, that behavior label you know within within that the, the setting i was in you'd got autism adhd 
trauma, attachment, sound processing, visual processing, dyslexia. The, the, the list of the list of underlying things is 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 vast. Quite often, you've got a cocktail of different ones. Uh, and so if you don't know what's causing the behavior, then you can be barking up the wrong tree when you try to, mm. to, to work with it. So, so the more understanding for me is absolutely critical because every single one of those children that was in that SMH uh, setting were in mainstream first. And yeah. had, most of them had completed primary and then it had been secondary when they, so there's lots of opportunities there to work with those young people and, it's you know I've, I've had this I've, I've made this statement before and people have, have disagreed with me but for me I think about 75% of the children that are in SMA settings if the support is right in the mainstream at the right time I don't think they need to be in alternative provision no I mean I, I spoke to somebody called Dr Chris Bagley and he he talks a lot about what what other countries are doing you know the likes of not just Scandinavia but Portugal and Italy and they haven't got alternative provision no. So, so they are, you know, these children that are being out of sight and out of mind sometimes within our systems, they're in the schools and 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 it's working, and they're matching our results just as well as as what we are. So there must yeah. be there must be something more that we could be doing. I think so, and and I think you get better results, don't you? Anyway, once children are happier in themselves, they well, learn more effectively. And therefore, your results go up anyway. I used to bang on endlessly about that to well, anyone who would listen. It's brain physiology. You know, yeah. you, you need you need the frontal cortex at the front of your brain to be working in order to learn. And if if you're not feeling safe, then you are in a different part of your brain. And yeah. You cannot retain or no. or remember information. I think I think the current the current narrative, isn't it? And you know, we've got to do more maths and English. We've got to catch up. You know, what does case. that what does that even mean exactly but the thing is what we're doing is we we're, we're focusing on catch-up and we're pouring into a, a cup with a lid on you know yeah. because it's not being taken in it's not and we need the quality over the quantity it, it's, absolutely oh i'm so glad you've used that phrase quality because i say that when i train when i work with the trainee teachers i say it's not about getting stuff in books it's not about getting through the curriculum it's about getting great learning and depth in learning and thinking about learning and, and getting children excited and curious and wanting to do these things because then the learning's so much better. Stop yeah. thinking that going, you're not instructors. You're not trying to lay the information on top of them. But there's a lot of that, isn't there? You know, mm. the, you know how, how memory works and, and there's lots of fancy phrases and and all those all those different things but they they only work if if the child is is safe and calm absolutely yeah I, something that really struck me when i was reading some of the things you've said was about the fact that we need to teach behavior rather than manage it and that that often means going against your natural instincts and impulses that as adults we might think is the right approach can you just expand on that a bit one of the first people that did some training with me that really resonated was, was somebody called Dr. Rob Long. And, and he's a really flamboyant character with lots of mantras and, and stuff. And one of the things he would say is that behavioural mistakes are learning opportunities. And, and I completely agree with that. And that's what we've got to do if we're going to teach. And that's, that's how we teach every other subject. You know, yeah. English lessons, you know, you redraft, you correct punctuation, you correct grammar 
maths, everything's about corrections and 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 things like that. You know, PE is literally, you know, you mess it up, you practice it, you you have another go at it, and that's how we learn and that's how we teach every subject. Yet there's an expectation with behaviour that we just know how to do it, and children should just know how to do it and if they don't do it, we should punish them for getting it wrong. Mm. And, and it just doesn't yeah, make sense. Ju just that phrase you've used there, we should punish them for getting it wrong. When do we ever punish them for using the wrong adjective or for, uh, in science, drawing the incorrect conclusion from the evidence they've got? We just don't punish them, do we? We use it, as you say, for a learning opportunity. Yeah, otherwise, because you disengage. You know, I, I, uh, I, I decide I want to learn guitar and I pick up a guitar and I, I've never played it before, so I don't play it very well. And you punish me for playing it badly. I'm never going to pick that guitar up again. No. And and it just it, it just it, it baffles me. That's where we that's where we're at with that sometimes. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a it's a conversation I have very very regularly. And and I think yeah. I think the reason that it happens, I think I think what sometimes it's very easy to do as an adult is to project your own experiences onto the children and and therefore you make those assumptions that that child should just know how to do something you know mm. based on you know you were taught when you were a small child you didn't have much adversity you were taught how to have manners and how to um be polite to people and how to self-regulate and all those things that we sort of expect children to be able to do if you've got a young person that hasn't had those experiences then they're not there and no. so we, we can we can complain about the fact that the children don't have those skills by all means but the complaining bit gets us nowhere no you know it, it's a it we have to replace those skills it's as simple as that and is it our job probably not but if we don't do it who's going to do it well exactly and and probably it certainly is partly our job isn't it because if we're educators and truly educators then, then we educate the whole child. It comes straight back to what you said right at the beginning. Yeah, We're, it's not about teaching the subject; it's about teaching the child. And uh, and what we need to do is to teach them all the things they need to be great learners. And and this is right at the very heart of it, isn't it? I read an interesting bit of research some years ago now, looking at, at four and five year olds and saying, "What is the greatest indicator of GCSE success?" And of course, it was the four and five year olds who could manage their own emotions the best and could express their feelings and could work through feeling bad without doing things that that harmed themselves. And it's, it's just so obvious, isn't it? I, I say to trainee teachers all the time and teachers when I'm training them, think of the child you found hardest to teach in your career. And I said, were they high achievers? And they say, well, no. And you say, right, why aren't they high achievers? Well, because they behave badly. So what did you do about sorting out the behaviour in terms of getting the child to understand and to feel comfortable and, like you've said, safe, so that actually then they can focus on the learning? What is it then? What's the first thing you do with teachers who have this natural instinct to, to manage behaviour rather than nurture children? I, I think it's 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 all about mindset and it's you know a lot of the work that I that I find myself doing now you know I, I do I, I do a fair bit where I'm, I'm preaching to the converted and and that's you know that's a nice easy day that but I do quite like the challenge of going in and, and trying to change the way 
I mean, that's why that's the, that's the name of my company is changing perception, mm. you know, and that's what that's why that why that is, is because that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get people to understand that, you know, that behavior comes from a place. And the only way to really do that is to get them to to put themselves in the, the, the child's, child's shoes, if you like. And and it's trying to take what is really quite complex neuroscience concepts um and trying to make them a little bit more understandable for for people who aren't high level neuroscientists like me because i you know i what you know the, the, when i first started looking at this it was it was it blows your mind a lot of it um but then you pick out the bits that actually think oh that makes a lot of sense for this and mm. that makes a lot of sense for that and and what i've tried to do is is to sort of take those aggressive and challenging behaviors that children sometimes display and try and work out the origins of where those those come from and, and there are lots and i've mentioned lots of different things but for me they come from three different places and you will you will have those young people who have those very difficult experiences and they just respond instinctively in situations because it's based on being scared and it's a short-term response and it's linked to fear responses and it's based on and what they've experienced but they just lash out or they just they just mm. are impulsive and they can't control it and, and all of those different things and you know and, and if we've got that then we you know the focus needs to be for that young person is is their safety uh, and how do we create that and we'll talk about that in a bit um then you will have some other young people who where the safety comes is in the long-term survival um and they've realized that big response is getting them into lots of trouble it might be that their body has decided, I can't keep doing this to you. I can't keep sending your heart rate through the roof and releasing chemicals in your body and all mm. that. So we need a different response. And what you often find from those young people is that it's those irritating behaviours, those persistent disruptive behaviours, as we so often hear. You know, But essentially what a lot of those young people are doing is they're avoiding a situation where they are scared of failure they're scared of rejection they're scared of humiliation so what's the only way i can avoid this situation because as adults we advise each other to avoid difficult situations yeah we do you've got you've got a friend who goes on four or five unsuccessful job interviews the thing you say to them is right take a break for a bit you know have a bit of time for yourself it's not doing any good this at all and we advise them to to avoid yet as a child you've got no option to avoid you have to keep going to class. You have to keep going and doing the work. So how can you avoid? Well, the only way for me to avoid is by behaving poorly or... Yeah, I remember that, there, was a, there was a quote you put in, your, in one of your Twitter posts, which said, uh, people prefer the certainty of misery to the misery of uncertainty. Yeah, that's a Virginia satire quote that I use. I use all the time. And, and yeah. there's a big link to shame there. You know, when you've got... If, you, if you've got children who believe that they're they're bad or they don't deserve something then you know convincing them otherwise is very difficult to do you know you'll have some young people and and there'll be one of these in every single classroom and and if you they believe that they're bad because that's what other people have told them and then all of a sudden somebody comes in and says oh do you know what i really like you that child's thinking well why nobody else exactly yeah. yeah so i've got to prove to you how bad i am so i've got to you know um, and, and and that's something that I see all the time. And you'll have you'll have again 
the, the idea of taking behaviors just personally if if we think about adults again when you are when you have the day from hell from work it's not the people at work who get your response you you save it up all day and you go home and you you have a row with your partner and your partner's had nothing to do with your day at work but you know that's the person that cares about you unconditionally that that loves you whatever that isn't going to judge you that isn't going to be you know reject you for it so they're the safe person to let that out with and sometimes that safe person is in the school not at home and that you know that is the most backhanded compliment in the world is you mm. get the worst of their behavior because you make them feel the safest but it's that kind of reframing that actually sometimes is is a is a penny drop moment for some of those adults working with with those children so you know you've got that instinctive survival response you've got that longer term avoidance which is you know sometimes looking for the reason behind the reason but the most common one for me is is again it's that overwhelmed or that built up response you know we we all experience it we we start to get a bit frustrated and then we're a bit agitated and then we we start to get snappy and if we don't do anything we carry on and we end up with an aggressive or a, or a poor behavior response at the end of it mm. but as adults we have the self-regulation skills to know oh, i'm getting a bit snappy now i'm going to go and walk the dog or i'm going to go and um i'm going to go to the gym or i'm going to go and listen to some music or some because we know how to self-regulate we know how to stop that process from continuing if you've got a young person in school who hasn't got those self-regulation skills and there's nobody in school that's self that's co-regulating them then that is going to spill over and we've got you know all the acronyms the stress sponge the stress bucket the iceberg <laughs> that, you know there's so many of these but they, nobody seems to apply them to children no um, and it's and, and that again there's so many crossovers between children and adults that if you can use the adults as an example it can sometimes shift the mindset when they're working with with the children but yeah we'll still have those there will still be adults that hold expectations of children in a much higher way than they would the expectations of adults yeah and that's so that's so true and we've only got to look in public life at the moment haven't we about appalling behavior and how uh how a lot of the time it's not called out for what it is i know there's loyalty and all these other nonsense things involved but uh, it's shocking behaviour that we'd never accept from children. And yet, oh, well, it's an adult. It's this, it's that. There's an excuse. There's this. And yet with children who need the most teaching and the most support and the most help to, to develop these positive attitudes, then, uh, then we tell them off and then trigger all those things you've just described so clearly to us. It's, it's mind-boggling, isn't it? Oh, it I, is. It's astonishing. A perfect example, you know, because I, I, it, it cracks me up because I train I train adults um, a, a lot now, and 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 I still do a little bit of work with children, but I do I predominantly train adults. And somebody asked me yesterday, "What's it like training adults?" And I said that the behaviour is worse than the children, mm. you know, and and it is, and and things that that you would never stand for, and you know, the, the the children, the the fidgeting, the talking to the person next to them, them getting up and walking around you know talking over you it's it's all present in any training session you know these things are, are taking place all the time but they're natural human responses we're not designed yeah. to sit still no six hours a day it's just it's just not natural at all you know and it's all part of our 
our ways of, of of regulating ourselves. You know, I, I often I often come across schools and, and they're driven mad by children that, that can't sit still. And and what I often say to them to do is, is go and go and do a home visit with them when they're at home. Mm. And watch them at home and they will never be still. They'll be up and around, they'll be fidgeting, mm-hmm. they'll be upside down, they'll be sitting on arms of chairs because that's their way of keeping themselves regulated and you know we can we can do things to help them with that or we can make them sit still yeah. and not, you know only one of them is going to improve on their behavior and their learning and their impact on the classroom yeah it's astonishing isn't it you when you see four-year-olds transition to five-year-olds and they go from this this environment where they can be driven by their own needs and their own learning and the teacher is there guiding them and nurturing them and supporting them and then they go into year one and someone says we've got to do national curriculum so we have to now sit in desks as if this is a natural transition for children and uh, and we see the same year six going into year seven completely different uh, way of working and a way of carrying on in school where you trek off from class to class the stresses and strains it puts on those vulnerable children is immense isn't it and yet and yet we then think well it's not okay just because you've changed school that doesn't make this okay well it might not be okay but we need to put more effort into into supporting that child to uh, to find a way that they can successfully access what what the education is trying to provide well, we're teaching formal writing to children who haven't got enough bones in the fingers. You yeah. know, it, it's, it's and it, and it is, and and the thing is, when 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 these things were designed, we didn't have the knowledge that we have now. Which, no. So so there was an excuse then. Yeah. You know, there there is no excuse now. You know, the, the movement and things like that, the all the neuroscience stuff. You know, the, it's all there. One of the most dangerous phrases in education is, is what we've always done. Oh, not off. Um, and and there's still people that are very reluctant to move away from that. Mm. And and obviously, if you do move away from that, you get labelled as progressive. And like that's a bad Maverick. thing. Yeah. yeah, dangerous you know, person. Progression is a bad thing. We've got an astonishing number of children out of school at the moment. Mm. It's really, really, and, and and you know, COVID has played its part, but it's also masking the fact that that's where we're at at the moment it's it's unacceptable how many children aren't receiving education uh, at the moment we talk about life skills for children here mm. and and one of those life skills is being able to belong and mix with you know and we you know there will be certain young people a very small cohort who you know actually the best thing for them is that homeschooling but yeah. so many are receiving it where actually they need to be in an environment with peer group and and learning um, learning to be a successful adult rather than a, a a set of grades. Yeah, totally, totally. So, what are the what are the key aspects then? So, we're we're thinking about inexperienced teachers now. If you had a sort of one, two, three of these are the things that you really need to think about when you're supporting these challenging pupils. What would what would your sort of one, two, three be for them? A lot of the stuff that that talk about comes from um, comes from Kim Golding's two hands of discipline model, um, you know, which which again probably goes back to my my early time in in the EBD setting, you know, getting the balance of the relationships and the boundaries right, uh, you know, and and, and I, what what I often get hit with is, you know, you don't have, you know, because because I'm talking about relational practice and 
restorative practice and I'm I'm talking about um child-centered approaches I quite often get well you you don't have any boundaries you just let children do what they want and and that's ab- absolute nonsense um you know the the boundaries are very important but it's that understanding that might be a new thing for that young person or they haven't learned how to do that yet so when when a child gets something wrong and we we look at why that's happened we aren't excusing it we are explaining it and mm. the explanation is different to the excuse and you know the fact that once they've once they've made that behavioral mistake that is our opportunity then that is our learning opportunity and one of the things that i do is is i'm a a, a team teach tutor so in terms of the, the you know the physical intervention training but yeah Often that's what people think team teach is about, is about how to hold children. It's not. It's about how to prevent holding children. Mm. And one of the threads that runs through team teach and, and everything is centralised around is the stages of a crisis. And people will have seen that model. I would, I would imagine it's in our um, initial teacher training at some point or another where, you know, you're looking at a young person where things start to build up and then they get to... A crisis point and then what do you do the other side in order to bring them down and really seeing that as a holistic process now early intervention is always going to be the key and yeah. there'll be lots of there'll be lots of schools doing brilliant practice where that bell curve model that, that it looks at with the high hump doesn't take place it's lots of little ones all day mm-hmm. because the member of staff is attuned to that young person and they're recognizing the, the as soon as that child is slightly off they then step in do something with that young person bring them back and then it's lots of little five minute interventions over the course of the day and that is quite intensive if you've got 30 children but the amount of time you lose with the disruption if you let that child go into crisis is far less than by your young people are regulated so yeah 100 percent. i was in a class this was some years ago now four or five years ago working in a school as a as, as a consultant you know on teaching and learning and i said to the teacher who was teaching i said that boy at the back there is he's going to blow in a minute isn't he he's very agitated why don't you go over and just and just teach from over there so that, that just your presence near him will be a sort of and you can put your hand on his shoulder and say are you okay and all that sort of soft skill stuff and she said i'm teaching at the front i'm not going back there and 30 seconds later he threw a chair across the class and the whole class got taken out and uh and the teacher said he often does that sort of thing and i said well you could have prevented that couldn't you if you just moved yourself just just shown some humanity to him then I don't think he'd have thrown the chair. He'd have still been agitated, but he'd have said, here's, here's my teacher who loves me and he's looking after me and, and she's coming to try and, and make me feel better. But he didn't feel that at all. He felt like he was on his own there and things like you've just very clearly described, you know, the bell curve. He was getting to the point of the, the crisis and he reached it because she wasn't willing to reach out to him. And that was really painful to watch. And that again is a part of, uh, you know, the you if you if you do miss that early level stuff for whatever reason, either you've 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 just missed it, it's happened really quickly, or or you've chosen to ignore it, you're going to then get that escalation, and and you're going to be faced with quite a challenging behaviour, mm. and that challenging behaviour is going to be disruptive. It can't be ignored. It has to be 
um, dealt with, but it's often viewed as, you know, I'm doing this, what you're going to do about it is kind of the essence of the child's response there. And, and, and don't worry, it could, it certainly could be, but more often for me, it's a, you know, I'm starting to lose control now. I need you to see me and I need you to help me. Mm. And that's what the child is, is communicating. They just don't know how to say that. No. Uh, so what would you have said? What would you have said to the, that teacher I've just described when she notices that, that he's reaching crisis point? What, what would be, I mean, I gave her a suggestion based on my sort of instinctive response rather than because I'm an expert in it. What would, what would your thought like, be? To, to put it in layman's terms, you know, if, if, we, if we intervene at the early stages, we've got a list of strategies as long as you're on. We've got all of the verbal stuff we can do, the jobs, the, you know, the little conversations about special interests, distractions, all of those things are at our disposal. And it's probably going to take us a few minutes mm. and that child will go back to back to back to a baseline point if we wait for for them to escalate then there's a very good chance that we no longer have the frontal cortex working mm. which means that all of the verbal stuff that we would do is now gone um so we're having to communicate in a much different way it's all about body language and synchronization and all of that kind of stuff which you know, we might be very skilled at, but it's going to take us much longer, you know, yeah. and, and if we've got to that point, we're probably looking at 15, 20 minutes. And if we do nothing and we let it go to crisis, then like you've said there, the whole class have got to go out of the room mm. or we have massive disruption in the classroom or somebody has to come and get that young person. We're probably losing, you know, it's going to be 40 minutes at least before we get that child back in the classroom ready to learn. And that's without taking into account the impact on, on everybody else. Yeah. So I can do seven of those little interventions and still lose less learning time than one incident of a child going to crisis. Mm. So for me, that is, again, it just it's an absolute no-brainer for me, um, but it's trying, to, it's trying to go against what they've been told a lot of the time and, and what the DFB message is, in that, and that is to... Ignore that low-level behaviour and wait for <laughs> wait for the crisis. You know, and and I'm sorry, but you know uh, the reason for that is well, they might be okay, but when is hoping for the best ever been a, a strategy? It's, yeah. it, it, I, I find again it, it's it, it difficult to difficult to stomach sometimes that that's that's the position that we're that's the advice that we're being given sometimes goes against what everything else says. Yeah, absolutely. What What do you think about giving children choices? At what point in that? Because I, I know that that I see that happen a lot in classes, uh, and I use this a lot myself too. Uh, do you, Do you think there's value in that? I think I think it's one of those one of those strategies you've got that first stage. You know, in in that verbal stuff. You know, and and that um, that controlled choices is definitely something you've got there. The problem that you've got when you get to the second stage is that you are in uh you're in a different part of the brain so mm. everything is met as challenge so if you're yeah. giving choices then that's something to refuse so whatever you put out there they're going to be in a mindset where they're going to refuse it yeah and so um i think i think once we've got to that point i think we're taking choices away and we're making the decisions for them but if if you've got the you've got the right bit of the brain working and you've got them in a you know, just slightly wobbling rather than distressed, then 
you know, choices are a great way of of going, and and it's giving that child that that potential way out, perhaps that mm. you might be doing. But it's all about, and and again, I, I do a lot of stuff around uh, individualized plans for for young people, and and there's a couple of you know they're often much overcomplicated plans and things, but but some of the things that get missed off there is what what that child is like when they're good. When they're when they're in a good place, when they're at their calmest, it's important that we acknowledge that on the plan. Mm. Uh, and sometimes we're so focused on we're we're writing a plan because of things going wrong. We focus on the negative behaviours, but actually, if we have their baseline on the plan, it reminds us that this is a good child in front of us. And also, if we then work our way backwards when we're doing those um, th those different stages of the behaviour, we are left in a position where we've got a child that is calm and settled and, and and you know whatever good word you want to use to describe it and then we've got a child that's on the verge of a crisis and something happens in between and that's when we're looking for you know maybe that child is a bit fidgety or they've got a, a funny look in their eyes or or they you know they're 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 daydreaming a bit or something and mm. those are the things we start we start to then look out for and, and the other thing is that we've got the we, we often have, we, we split off the different behaviours that a young person will do, and we have those escalations, but we just have a bank of strategies generally. And the thing is, what we do at crisis point as a strategy is completely different to what we do very early on. Mm. So if we're going to use something like limited choices or we're going we're gonna to do you know distraction or something like that, we need it to be done at the early stage. Because if we try mm. and do that at, at the end point, it won't work. No. So just like we've got different stages of behavior, we need a different strategy for each stage. And so we matched those up. So it would be three different behaviors and three different sets of strategies that we would do at each point. And that then focuses on what, you know, if you're a, a, a staff that's experienced with that young person, you come into there, right. So what are the things I'm looking out for early doors? What do I do about it? And if we have those bits of information and we act on those, we save ourselves the the bigger stuff down the line. Yeah. Um, and is, is this what your book, does your book contain things like this in it? Um, I, I'm not sure I went as far as, as planning. I've actually, I'm actually, I'm, I'm just putting the finishing touches to a new one where I do, I do go into oh, good. planning um, and, 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 and all of this stuff will be, will be in there. Um it's just it's getting it getting it getting it quite right has been the <laughs> the bit that's uh, yeah I've got so much admiration for people who write all their thoughts down. It's why I started the podcast. It's, it's so much easier to talk about it than it is to get it into fantastically perfect phrases yeah. for a book. The book is quite funny actually, and, and if you need to edit, edit any of this this out, then please do so. But I the the book came about in first lockdown, um, and you know I'd, I'd left my teaching role. Christmas 2019, which was a marvellous time to start your own company up three months before the apocalypse. <laughs> and uh, and, and I'd, all of my work had, had dried up. And so I was spending too much time on social media because <laughs> it was, you know, trying trying to, partly trying to get my name out there, but also because I didn't have much else <laughs> to do at the time. Yeah. And I came across um the new document from uh, the government behaviour SAR, which was the rebooting behaviour after COVID document. 
And I found that document at a time when there was there's some stuff from from Barry Carpenter about um, recovery curriculums and things like that, which I thought were much more appropriate. Mm. I found the, the the other document very authoritarian, you know, talking about hitting children with lots of new rules and and mm. and you know the list of misbehaviours like hugging your friends and stuff. Just I just thought was nonsense, and um, you know there was lots of elements of that that I thought were, wasn't quite quite what was needed at that point and i raised that with the with the with the author of it and i got nothing more than than a few sort of silly responses back and and so that's depressing I, isn't it that's it depressing is. when you've yeah. got a, a lifetime yeah. of experience working I was with very i was very polite at that point yeah uh, so i decided right that's it i'm gonna I, I took the document and i did an eight minute video critique of it which didn't go down very well with him, uh, and, and he blocked me on Twitter. Um, <laughs> but I thought, if I'm going to be critical of something, I should come up with something as an alternative. So the book is all based around the, the alternative model that I put together for for those those people working with those young people, and it's actually it's something I use on all of my training now, and it, it goes down incredibly well. Whether it's with schools, with care homes, with um, you know whatever whatever groups of people I'm, I'm working with. Uh, but, you know, I you'll be familiar with and your listeners might be familiar with the, the Thrive package or the Thrive model around, yeah. um, around stuff. And and one of the models within the Thrive is, is a Jenga tower. And the Jenga tower is designed to, to be a metaphor for a child's life, you know, and there will be missing blocks that have been adverse experiences for that young person. And the lower down or the earlier that those adverse experiences take place, the more wobbly that structure will be. Uh, and, and I think it's a really good, uh, good model. Yeah, no, it's a lovely analogy. It is. And, and so educators come into that child's life and they prop that, that structure up. And I think that's a really important thing that we do. My worry is that if we are focused on propping it up, then what happens when we are no longer around? Mm. And so for me, what we need is a scaffold. And so the scaffold is, is to do the sequential approach that I've been using, which is kind of a, a bit of a mixture of, of Maslow's hierarchy, which, you know, although it's 70 years old this year, is still as relevant as Absolutely. ever. Um, you know, the physiological needs to, to, to trust, to belonging, uh, self-actualization is marvelous model. And when I first went down that rabbit hole, I found uh, Dr. Bruce Perry um, and his neurosequential approach. So I try and kind of combine the two. And, and so the first, the first building block for any child to be successful in any setting is that safety. And I think what we often do, and certainly through COVID, what we've done is we've, we've focused on the physical safety yeah. But we've neglected the emotional safety. Mm. Um, and so, you know, all the extra hand washing, the lining up, the people wearing masks, the, you know, the, the, the lack of positive touch, they're all, they're all for physical safety of the environment. But do they make children feel emotionally mm. safer? I would say probably not. So and they don't, do they? And, and we see that adults don't feel particularly safe either, do they? Absolutely. And and so if we're focusing on emotional safety of the young people, then we are, you know, one thing I would always have done 
and I'd have found the COVID period very difficult if I'd still been in my my teaching role because I used to use positive touch as a huge mm. uh, course. Me too. My mm. stuff, you know that that pat on the back, the high mm. five, the fist bump, the, you know all of those things are are crucial for that that relationship building, that that safety creation with the child. So, you know, with the positive touch, giving that child a voice, um, making them feel heard and validated. Most importantly, mm. um, I think sometimes we, with the best intentions, we try to take things away for children, and we try to distract them from feelings and make them feel better, but actually. What we need to do is sit with them and tell them that it's it's okay to be upset or angry yeah. or, or fed up. Uh, and then, but the most important thing for creating safety, I think, is how how a children feels when they walk in your room. You know, mm. how do we meet and greet them? Do they feel wanted? Do they feel welcome? Do they feel comfortable? So that's our first first bit. And if we create that safety, then we are then getting to a situation where we've got the trust of adults. The adult trust is different to the trust of another young person. Well, you know, that comes a bit later on. Um, but some children will find, find that quite difficult. And some children will have had experiences during the last 18 months that has triggered those difficulties for them. You know, if they've got attachment needs, mm. most importantly, if they've got a situation at home where not necessarily an abusive caregiver, but a really inconsistent caregiver. And, you know, the reasons could be multitudes. You know, it could be mental health, drugs, alcohol. We all number of different things, but sometimes that adult is really loving, really caring, really emotionally available, and other times they just aren't. Mm. How does the child manage that that situation? You know, they could have that that anger um, towards a caregiver, which they will often come in and project to an adult in school. Yeah, we might have that really big defensive wall up that that some children will have, and we might have done a really good job of chipping away at that, and then. We had a lockdown and 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 they weren't a key worker child and they've had to go home and and now that wall is three times as high as it was in the first place can be yeah. really demoralizing. Um, but the most the most common one for me is if I don't know when the care is going to be available to me, then the safest thing for me to do is to have them there all of the time. Then I won't miss it. So yeah. that child comes into school expecting the same from the adults in school, and they're hanging off your trouser leg. And yeah. they're constantly asking you silly questions and they want you to check the work all the time. And, and it's and it's irritating and it's low level and, and it's attention seeking behavior that can be quite, quite trying. But again, if we reframe that as connection seeking, you know, for the reasons that we know are happening at home, then again, it's that mindset shift and that reframing that can be really uh, important for, for the adults. So you've got the safety, you've got the trust of adults. And then the next that's the point at which a lot of children I find are stuck. And, and I came up with this analogy and I use it as an example. And then I realized just how many children this affects because the third point on that, uh, that sequence is about that child's ability to regulate. And we've already said that, you know, some children don't have those skills. And if a child doesn't have the skills to regulate, then they will con consistently sab sabotage mm -hmm. opportunities of belonging because they will walk into rooms and they will look at the other young people who are wary of them. And they're right to be because this child lashes out. So there's nothing wrong with the children being wary of them. But if you are a hypervigilant child who lashes out a lot, you walk into a room and you are anticipating the rejection of other people, the safest thing for you to do is to reject first. Mm -hmm. So then we get stuck in that loop of constantly lashing out 
constantly yeah. sabotaging the belonging and then we can't move forward and that's why so many children are stuck in that position now if i can help that child to regulate they will stop lashing out and if they stop lashing out the other children stop being scared of them if the other children aren't scared and then they aren't walking in a room anticipating rejection and that's the point at which we can do the social skills and the belonging work and mm. and the reason i'm so passionate about this is because that was the mistake that i made a lot when I was in my role because I was getting paperwork through for children who'd been excluded from school who were saying you know um all of their problems social skills they are you know they, they they're rubbish at group work they're getting into fights onto your on yard and and stuff like that so if everything's social skills problems then the solution must be more social skills yeah. So we put that child in a room in a nice controlled environment with a couple of other children and we talk about facial expressions and we talk about body language and they engage really well and they listen and they understand and then they walk out of the room, somebody says something to them, they switch from a thinking brain to a survival brain, everything they've just learned has been forgotten and they end up lashing out again and we're back to square, yeah. square one with them. So if we can take away the fear of failure, the fear of humiliation, the fear of looking stupid, that's when we get your vulnerable and courageous learners, which is what we keep asking children to be. Yeah. You know, we're going to do this, this thing we've never done before. We're going to research this thing you know nothing about. That's really, really scary for our children that don't have that stability in place for them. And so, again, the safest thing for them to do in that circumstance is I will behave poorly to avoid rather than put myself out there uh, we, we have this illusion that that resilience is just just built just appears from nowhere and you know that you know that child being willing to put themselves out there and and make themselves vulnerable and be courageous well that isn't built on nothing that needs to be built on all of those other building blocks mm. and if we have that young person who we've created that belonging and they no longer fear failure or fear humiliation they feel safe enough to actually answer the question or respond or do the bit of work or whatever it is that's when we get the happier young person success that we're looking for and it's not it's you can't go to the top without putting the bottom bits in place no. and and so that that sequential approach is what the book is all about and how that we you know and there's this there's it started off as a resource with you know regulation activities and picture cards and and things like that and then it just developed into into something else but a lot of us well, will be in it, but yeah, um, excellent. Yeah. That's fascinating. Uh, this, this has been a fascinating chat. I don't want to stop, but I've got to stop. But it's gone very quick, hasn't it? Oh, it does. It does, and 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 it's always so engrossing when you're talking about stuff like this. That's so interesting, and 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 actually so deep, isn't it? There's so much to it, and and we try to simplify something that's very complex just so we can compartmentalize things into easy solutions and actually all these difficult things don't really have easy solutions as we both know well graham i can't thank you enough for for talking to me today it's been absolutely brilliant and uh and i'm definitely going to ask you again because when when that second book comes out you'll have to come back and and talk a bit more because there's so much more to say but but I know that all the listeners will have uh, have taken so much from today. So thank you very much. No, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Wow, how good was that? I do love talking to experts. 
I instinctively did some of the things that Graham has been talking about, but I would have been so much better if I had understood why these approaches could be so powerful. And now I know, thanks to Graham. Well, our discussion has reminded me of a quote made by the Buddha. The Buddha, as I'm sure people know, began life as a royal prince, detached from the reality that the common people experienced. Hmm, sounds a bit like today. But having witnessed their pain and suffering, he began a spiritual journey on the path to enlightenment so he could free them from this. And this quote has stuck with me as it sums up the joy of being a teacher. Buddha said, if you light a lamp for somebody, it will also brighten your path. And that's true, isn't it? If we get these children to be more comfortable and happier in their own skins so they're ready for learning, our job becomes easier and our enjoyment of our work becomes more so. Oprah Winfrey said something similar, doubtless inspired by the Buddha. She said, helping others is the way we help ourselves. And then, of course, there's that old, timeless saying, which is very appropriate too. Helping one person might not change the world, but it could change the world for that person. And that's what Graham has shown us today. Thank you, Graham, so much for sharing your wisdom with us. So what now, listeners? What is the one small thing that you will do tomorrow that will make a difference to your teaching and a difference to the success of your pupils? Remember, one small step at a time is the way to continual improvement. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. We'll keep you updated on the latest episodes on Twitter at WhatNQT. I look forward to being with you next time for another thought-provoking educational chat. Until then, I'm Jeremy Crook, and this has been the latest podcast from What I Wish I Knew as an NQT slash ECT.